Daniel chapter 7. Have y'all enjoyed Daniel? Do you feel like you know a little bit more now about the book of Daniel? Dude, this is, it's a girthy, girthy book, man. I, uh, anybody feel like when you're reading Daniel, you're like uh, on some kind of drug or something where you're like, what the heck is going on right now? Or read the book of Revelation. Anybody read the, read the book of Revelation? Feel like, man, I'm, I'm so lost right now. I know when I was growing up, never really read the Bible, okay? My mom would always tell me, Jared, read your Bible, read your Bible, and I'm like, Mom, I'm not, okay, I'll read the Bible, and I never read it. I wish I would have. It's one of my regrets. But I was always so fascinated by the book of Revelation and kind of the book of Daniel, and I'd open it up, and I would just read through it, and I took it so literally. I'm like, this is so fascinating. I'm like, how can the Antichrist come, like this beast with ten horns, this giant red serpent? I'm like, how are we going to miss this? This is so obvious, right? We don't see beasts every day. But then as you read more and more the Bible and God by careful prayer, uh, prayerful and careful study of his word, which we're all supposed to do, key word on prayerful, right? We're, all, we're supposed to pray, go to our knees so that we can understand his word. He wants us to understand it. Uh, and through uh, reading the rest of the Bible and reading more of Daniel, he gives you an understanding that these are really types of, of a literal reality that's going to take place. And that's the book of Daniel in Revelation. It's so incredible. This book is so incredible. Y'all went through chapter 6 last week. We're in chapter 7 this week. And something real quick, I might be, um, I might be repeating what Jake's already said, but a couple quotes from a, uh, from a couple guys, okay, about the book of Daniel and how incredibly accurate this book has been so far. We've seen about 90% of Daniel take place. There's about 10% left, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, uh, y'all, anybody know Dr. J. Vernon McGee? If you don't know him, go listen to him. He's got great commentary. He's an incredible guy, and he writes on Daniel. He writes on Revelation. writes, I think, on all 66 books of the Bible. He said this about Daniel, okay? He said, Daniel gives us world history pre-written, meaning it was written, and then it happened. Then it took place. Uh, he said, history that's been followed right down to the minutest detail for the last 2,500 years since the time that it was written unbelievable accuracy and then here's what an unbeliever an historian his name is Edward Gibbon this is what he said about the book of Daniel unbeliever okay does not believe in the Bible to be the inerrant word of God but he says this the four empires in Daniel 7 are clearly explained and the invincible armies of the Romans are described with as much clearness in the prophecies of Daniel as in the histories of Justin and Diodorus, two historians that were uh, historians during the time of the Romans. He said the book of Daniel itself is more accurate than even these guys that uh, lived while some of this took place. And you know what the most oftentimes, the, the, one of the greatest quotes or something that people often say is the book of Daniel is way too accurate. It had to be written afterwards. And we say, no, that's just how good of a God that we serve that he is to the nth degree uh, shown us everything that's going to happen. Everything that has happened is going to happen. Now, Jake might have said this too. The book of Daniel can be, uh, it can be divided into two sections. One through six is history, more historical. Seven through 12 is going to be more prophecy. So tonight we're in seven. We're beginning the prophecy. Um, and you have parallel chapters here. Okay, chapter six that you guys went through just last week ends much like chapter three. Y'all remember these chapters? So we had chapter 6, or we had chapter 3, where uh, you have pagan kings that worship the God of Israel because of a salvation that the God of Israel works out through his people. You have chapter 3, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And where are they thrown? They're thrown into the fiery furnace. What happens? They come out unscathed and untouched by the fire. So much that the pagan king worships God, and he says, everybody's going to now worship God. That's how good they are. And that's chapter 3. Chapter 6 ends the same way. You remember Darius, uh, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, but he comes out untouched, unscathed, and the, and, the, and the pagan king worships God, and he makes an edict for all to worship God. So you have these parallel chapters. So chapter 7, what we're in tonight, parallels chapter 2. Y'all remember chapter 2? The statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar? Y'all remember that at all? You had the, the statue of the metals... Uh, where you had gold, the gold of head, uh, the head of gold. You had the arms of silver, the uh, chest and the, and, the, and the waist of bronze, and then you had iron legs, and then you remember you had the ten toes with iron and clay. Uh, so you have, or we know we had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, 
Rome and then a revived Rome. Well, we're going to look at that in a different light. Chapter 7 is believed. What we're going to be in tonight is the same empires that chapter 2 talks about. Uh, where the metals kind of give us an outward appearance, what, how man sees um, all these empires, how man sees the glory of himself, we see God looks at it in a totally different light. Chapter 7 gives us more of the inward reality that these empires, these man-made orders, are actually more like carnivorous beasts that are just wild. They're violent, and they become more and more depraved over time. So chapter 7 and chapter 2, they come together to paint a bigger picture for us. And then on top of that, we get the book of Revelation that comes in and paints an even bigger picture. So scripture comes together to interpret scripture. You cannot read Daniel without reading Revelation, or you're missing a big chunk of what God's trying to tell us. So y'all with me? Y'all ready? This is a chunk, man. This is a lot we're going to go through. Chapter 7, it's big, but I think we're going to have some fun. Okay, so chapter 7, we got the four kingdoms. Or as Luke calls it in his gospel, the time of the Gentiles. This is the time that the Gentiles are ruling over the entire known world. Specifically, they're ruling over Israel or the promised land. So the Jews are in captivity for the most part, or they're under slavery under an empire. So that's what we're getting. Now what I want us to see is not only God's command, his control, and his hands over the macro, okay? I.e. the empires and the world orders that we're, we're about to see take place. Uh, he's got his hand over and his command over, uh, on an even lesser scale, his people that are in exile. And on an even lesser scale than that, the little individuals like Daniel, whom he loves so much and he cares about so much that he not only shares with him visions of, what, uh, of what's about to happen, but he's about to send a messenger angel that has held up for 21 days, all to tell him how much he loves him and what's about to happen in the future. Isn't that unbelievable? If that doesn't comfort us for today, I really don't know what will. Um, we all, it's, it's kind of a cool little picture. Here's a cool thing. We're all like little Daniels, okay? We've been given the vision. We've been shown what's about to take place, what has taken place, what is, uh, what is happening now, and what's going to be future. We've all been given that vision through the book of Daniel, through the, the 66 books of the Bible. So God has given us the vision like he's given Daniel, and he has sent his son Jesus Christ to tell us how much he loves us. So we get to be like little Daniels today, and even a greater scale, we could say we're like little Christ Christians, which is an even greater scale. So looking at chapter 7, he's not only going to give us a dream, he's going to give us the interpretation of the dream. He really wants us to understand this. And not only the interpretation, but he's going to give a detailed explanation of the fourth beast, which is different from all the other beasts different from all the other empires. This beast is not only a part of the 90% that's already happened, okay? He's a part of the 10% that's about to happen in the future. And not only this, he's going to take us from earth, not only show us, show us what's happening on earth, he's going to pull back the curtain and show us this is the heavenly reality. This is what's going on in heaven. I've got everything under control. So God goes above and beyond to make sure his children know he has everything under control. And he is still telling us the same thing today. I've got everything under control. He is so cool. He is so calm. He is so collected on his throne. So here's a couple questions before we get started. Does God have to let us know what's going on in his plans? Does he have to tell us what he's doing? Absolutely not. But he does. Why does he tell us what's going on? Why does he share these visions with us of what's about to happen? History written out. Because he loves us. And get this, he calls us friends, okay? Friends. I think this is one of the greatest characteristics of our relationship with Christ and with God is that we are called friends of God. It's hardly ever talked about. I don't know why. But I think of Abraham. You remember with, with, when Abraham is walking with the three angels, it says. I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ, okay? It's Christ before uh, he came in his first coming. It says, the angel of the Lord is speaking with Abraham, and they're going to Sodom. And, and the angel of the Lord, Jesus, says, should I, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And, he, and, he, and then he goes and explains everything to Abraham, what he's about to do, and the judgment that's coming on Sodom. And it says, uh, he called Abraham a friend of God. He let him know what was happening. Fast forward 1,500 years. Jesus is with his disciples. John chapter 15. You guys have probably read it before. Verse 15. What's Jesus say to his disciples? 
I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Because everything the Father has made known to me, I make known to you. He calls us friends. Is that unbelievable? So this is not the God that's just over the macro, the big picture, the world orders. He's the God of the individual that has us in the palm of his hands. Why? Because he loves us and he sent his only son to die for our sins. And we're going to talk about that son tonight. So here's the beautiful thing. He's, got, he's given us not only Daniel and Revelation, okay, that are unbelievable pro- prophetical books. He's given us 66 books, the entire Bible, to know his will, his ways, to know what he has done, what he's currently doing, and what he's going to do in the future. We are called friends of God. So we get to the text, chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to look at the four beasts, which represent four uh, empires. And there's a little bit later, he's going to get the interpretation of these empires. We're just going to collect these together because it'd, it'd take us forever if we didn't. So verse 1 then says this. It gives us a little time stamp of when this took place, okay? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, does the name Belshazzar ring a, ring a bell for anybody at all? Y'all remember chapter 5? Handwriting on the wall, many, many tickle parson. He was judged. That was the end of the reign of Belshazzar. It says here, this is the first of his reign, the first year. And you look at history, Belshazzar reigned for about 12 years. So chronologically, chapter 7, what we're about to read, actually happens before chapter 5, which is kind of confusing. But they say they probably compiled these because the first six are history, the next six are prophetical. So chapter 7 happens before 5 and 6. And what happens in chapter 5 with Belshazzar? He sees the handwriting on the wall, knocks his knees together, pees his pants. He's so scared. Okay, judgment is coming to Belshazzar in the Babylonian kingdom. Who's he run to when he sees the handwriting on the wall? Does he run to God? Does he run to any of his prophets? No, he runs to magistrates. He runs to sorcerers. He runs to everybody that the world has to offer, and none of them can give an answer to Belshazzar of what this message on the wall means because he is scared. And then what happens? His mom says, have you not considered Daniel? Do you remember your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar? He interpreted that entire dream, told him everything that was about to happen. He's got the spirit of the gods in him. He can interpret dreams. And so he calls on Daniel, and Daniel's cool, calm, and collected, comes in, reads it, interprets it. He says, dude, I've already seen the vision of chapter, chapter 7, what we're about to see. I've seen every, every bit of history unfold, and I know who's going to win at the end. I saw this stone cut without hands that took out all the world empires and the everlasting kingdom that comes with the Son of Man that we will reign forever and ever and ever. I've seen it all. I already know Babylon's gone. So Daniel's actually seen this text before that happens in chapter 5. So it's Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So Babylon's currently reigning, and uh, it happens before 5 and 6. And it goes on to say this, verse 1. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Here's a cool part, too. I think oftentimes you see in Scripture God come to people in visions and dreams when they're asleep. I think too many times we think, man, I got to be on for the Lord. I got to use my strength for the Lord. I got to use my gifts for the Lord. And I think there's 100% a place for that. We have to. We're good servants of Christ that steward our gifts well, right? God comes to this man when he's cognitively completely out. And he's about to give him a vision. And not just any just kind of normal vision. He's about to lay out the entire history of mankind. And tell him everything that's about to take place well before it takes place. So he comes to him in a vision at night when he's sleeping. And then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now I want to ask you this. Where is Daniel currently at right now? Where is he residing at? Where is he living? Babylon. Is that in the land of promise? Far from the land of promise. Where's the temple of the Lord? Which is where the presence of the Lord is. Jerusalem. So he's in a foreign nation with foreign language, with foreign empires and foreign people that are over, and we still see God speaking. Is God confined to a specific place or a specific kingdom? No. And I just read this morning, anybody read the book of Jonah? Super short, you can read it in one little setting. Shows the sovereignty of God that even in a whale, it says he appoints a whale or appoints a fish, says fish, big fish, to swallow Jonah, and then Jonah prays to him in the, in the fish, and does God hear him? 
answers his prayer, spits him out, gets into where he's supposed to go. God's sovereignty all over that fish to appoint the fish to swallow him. It says, speaks to the fish to spit him out. And then it says he, and then it says he appointed a plant to come up. I mean, God, it shows God's sovereignty to the nth degree. So is God confined to where we're at or where he's at if he can speak to us or not? He's the God over all creation. You remember Dan, uh, David in, the, in, in Psalm 139, he says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. Wherever I flee to in the greatest darkness, even there your hand will guide me. There is nowhere God cannot be, and God cannot speak to his people. So he's outside the land of promise. He's far from the temple, but God is still speaking to his children that he's in control and that he's going to see his plan through. This Babylon control, his people in exile, do you think it took God by surprise? Absolutely not. Not even for a second. And God caused it because of disobedience. He's refining his people, and he's still speaking. And then it says Daniel wrote it down. He wrote down the sum of the matter. Uh, writing it down shows that God wants more than just Daniel to know this. Who else does he want to know this? What's happening? What history unfolding? The future. He wants us. He wants us to know it. And that's what I think is so amazing. Jake Johnson is incredible. Y'all know that. I mean, what a phenomenal dude. I love that he has you guys going through the book of Daniel. I just think, of how many college ministries are going through the book of Daniel? I would say very little. But the fact that y'all are reading this, taking it seriously, is amazing. So the fact that Daniel wrote this, thank God he did, because we get to read it today. We get to know it today. God wants us to know it. He calls us a friend. He loves us. Verse 2 then goes on. It says this, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea here is a picture of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the four winds, meaning kind of the four areas of the compass. You have north, east, south, and west. So this is really the entire known world. That stuff is being, there's kind of agitation, there's propaganda, there is disturbances in the world. And it says the four winds of heaven. Who's causing it to happen? God is. He's sovereign. So he's moving these pieces um, and, and it's brought on or used by God. So things are stirring up, things are happening and what comes out of the great sea these four beasts. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, a sea or waters is depicted of Gentile nations or any nation that's not God's nation, Israel. Um, on Revelation chapter 13, it says the harlot sits upon many waters. The prostitute sits upon many waters, many Gentile nations. So these are Gentile nations coming out of the Gentile world is the picture here. And then out of this chaos, out of the stirring up, we're about to see the beast come. And it says this, verse 3, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And the different from one another matches the vision of chapter 2 of the statue. Did the statue have one metal that went all the way through? No, it was gold. It was silver. It was brass. It was iron. Then it was iron mixed with clay. So the differences here match that of chapter 2. The beasts we see that are about to come out are progressively worse. They're progressively more violent. They're progressively more odd. So that's what we're going to see. They're progressively more destructive. So verse 4, then we see the first beast come out of the sea. It says this, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This is the head of gold of chapter 2. And it's interesting, if you look at archaeological kind of digs in Babylon, you'll see lions with wings on them. Uh, but this represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. It says this, Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. This is probably the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember when he's given the mind of an ox? He goes out and he starts eating grass for like seven years. Anybody eat grass one time? This guy ate it for seven years, okay? Probably not the greatest diet you could ever do. And he's given the mind of an ox. He's insane. And he eats grass for seven years, but then it says this, and he was lifted up from the ground, so he was restored, and it says made to stand on two feet like a man. We know Nebuchadnezzar was, came back to his senses. God restored his mind, and he stood up again, and he actually was uh, reinstated as, into his kingdom. And it says this at the end, and the mind of a man was given to it. I wholeheartedly believe that Nebuchadnezzar was converted to the God of Israel after this. Y'all remember how chapter four ends. So he's insane, he's restored, his people bring him back. You know how it ends, verse 37 in chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar himself says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is good and all his ways are just. 
and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Kind of gives me chills. That's a pagan king that comes to the uh, realization that the God of Israel is the only God. And that those who walk in pride, he can humble like that. Nebuchadnezzar would be the first to tell you. So the first one is the head of gold. It's the lion with wings. It's Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see another beast, the second beast, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. And you notice he says Lyca, Lyca. I don't even know if these are necessarily the actual animals that he's seeing, but I think he, with human words, is trying to describe something that's almost indescribable. But he says, like a bear. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. These are the arms of silver on the statue. You guys remember that? Chapter 2. And it says it was raised up on one side. So this, it's kind of a deformed bear. It's well known in history. You read about the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians were far stronger than the Medes, Okay. And it said it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Uh, these ri- three ribs most likely refer to the kingdoms that they took, they took over to take over the whole known world. The Libyans, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. Okay? So this is all history. Y'all can go, you can go read. For the sake of time, we can't really go into it. But man, this is to the, to the nth degree this describes these kingdoms. And then it says this, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. There's more judgment to take place. The three ribs to God were not enough. Uh, God wants Persia to continue to conquer and feed on the previous empires that were before. So these guys got a job to do, and they're working for the Lord. Unfortunately, they don't know they're working for the Lord. But they're working for the Lord. And he says, get it done. And he gets it done. So that's the second beast, the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we have a third beast, a third empire that comes out of the Great Sea. And it says this, verse 6. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. If y'all want to get a tattoo, I think this would be a sick tattoo, a leopard with four wings. Jacob, I can see you with this tattoo, dude, Jacob Craven. Anybody want to see Jacob get this tattoo? Anybody pay for it? I think if we put enough money together, he'd get it. Would you get it if it was free? You would. Okay, great. So we see a leopard here. Again, these are bizarre images, four heads, four wings. Y'all know this guy. You've probably read about him in history or you've heard his name. Y'all know who I'm talking about? The king of Greece? This is Greece Empire. This is the brass kind of waist. This is Alexander the Great. Okay? I actually read a biography on this guy at the beginning of the year, not even thinking that I'd be teaching this, so I'm glad I did. This is the greatest military strategist, I think, of all time. This guy was relentless. He was unbelievable conquered the entire known world in less than 13 years before his 33rd birthday okay i'm 29 i haven't conquered anything i haven't even conquered my own household i got three kids they're running rampant i'm like dude this dude conquered the whole known world unbelievable and uh, so these four wings that it pictures denotes the swiftness and the relentless pursuit of his goal to conquer the whole world i mean by the end of of alexander's reign People were literally saying, hey, don't even worry about coming into our empire. We'll just surrender now. Dude, you can have it all, man. They play in music form. I mean, they were literally just welcoming him in. That's how scared they were. All by his 33rd birthday. I'm 29, dude. I got a lot to go. But it says this. It continues in verse 6. It says, and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, these four heads represent four kings that would end up taking over Alexander's reign. Why? Because he died at 32 years old. The dude was a madman, a drunk. Uh, he had battle wounds, so they don't know if he died from a battle wound, malaria, or drunkenness. But he drunk himself to death, basically, is what it is. And it's well known, if you read in history, that his kingdom divided to four kings and four empires after that. Again, you can read all this. Uh, and I think it's interesting, Daniel chapter 11, if y'all want to turn there, you can. Verses 3 and 4 speak further on Alexander's rise and his quick fall. To the T, and reminder that this is all still written before it ever happened. Hundreds of years before it ever happened. Daniel chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. It says this about Alexander the Great. Then a mighty king shall arise, Alexander, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And that was Alexander the Great. As soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided uh, to the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So it talks about his quick reign, his quick death, and given to four men. His kingdoms, the kingdom of Greece, will eventually fizzle out, 
which brings in then the fourth beast. The beast that gets way more press in Daniel chapter 7 than any beast before because it says it's different. There's something different with this beast. He's not only a part of the 90% that's already taken place in world history, he's a part of the 10% we have not seen yet. He's future. Okay, so we're going to read about that now. Verse 7. It says this, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. And he's going to describe it like he hasn't described the other ones. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. He didn't even have an earthly animal that he could compare it to. He said it had great iron teeth. Did it make you think of anything? Y'all remember chapter 2, the statue? What's the next, next metal? Iron, iron legs. This is Rome. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with his feet. These people were not only terrifying, they were not only dreadful, they were not only exceedingly strong, they were relentless. They rolled over their enemies. Rome was ruthless. Uh, this Rome was, it's more than just the Rome that we know today. Uh, it's the Rome that we're going to see revived in the future, and we'll get to that. So interesting thing about Rome was its ruthlessness and its violence. If anybody been to Israel before? One, we got a couple people in Israel. I knew you, Presley. I was waiting for you to raise your hand that time. Uh, one of the places you can go to in Israel is Masada. Did you guys go? Masada? You've never been then. And uh, it's this fortress of Herod, the great, actually. In Jesus' time, it was a fortress and kind of a getaway little springtime thing that he would go to for this little palace. And it was up on the cleft of this rock that you could only get to through this little snake path. And in 70 AD, you remember they had the revolt in Jerusalem, and Rome ransacked Jerusalem, and there were 500 Jews that revolted and ran to Masada and were up on top of this plateau kind of thing. And this is how ruthless Rome was. 500 people, men, women, and children, that Rome should never, ever care about. They meant nothing to them, okay? Rome marches their army down to this place, Masada. They encircle it. You can see it to this day, okay? A, 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 a kind of a wall, a 10-foot wall, all the way around this place. It's probably like a half a mile. It's unbelievable. For three years, the Romans besieged these 500 people that meant nothing to them. For three years, they build a wall. You can see the encampments around it. It's unbelievable. You still see it to this day. And they build a, 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 um, a ramp through sand and rock. They build a ramp all the way up to it, but they use Jewish slaves so that the people wouldn't kill them while they're building it. And so for three years, they wait patiently and build this thing so that they can get to these people and kill them because they revolted against them. I mean, they're ruthless. And the story goes on like this, that... The Jews would rather, they said, we'd rather die free than to live as slaves again. So they take, they take up straws, and the men killed all their, the women and children. It's real sick. It's crazy. And then they killed themselves with the story. Well, the way that the story got out, they said there's probably like a woman and five kids that kind of hid away, and they, they're the ones that go on to tell the story. But Rome comes in the next day. They finish the ramp. They come in. They find all these people dead on the ground. And you know what's funny? They actually paid homage to these people saying they are heroes. Those are her that's a heroic thing that they did to die as free rather than to be slaves. So they actually paid tribute to these people. But the ruthlessness, the point of my story is that they're ruthless. They're violent. 500 men, women, and children that mean nothing to them. They spend three years to destroy them. Three years to destroy them. And something interesting is their armies. You know what their armies were known as? The name of the army, the Roman armies? Legio Ferrata. Legio for, anybody say Legio Ferrata? I don't even know if I'm saying that right. It means Iron Legion. Okay? Iron Legion. Another picture of the statue. And you can go look up top-ranked, cruelest, and most evil emperors. I mean, it, it's disgusting what they would do. They were violent. They were, they were vile, uh, nasty emperors. Uh, I think of Nero. Everybody's probably heard of Nero, right? Time of Paul. Uh, probably killed some of the apostles. Uh, killed not only his wife and his mother. You remember what he did? He put Christians as lampstands, burned them alive for his festivities. That's what he would do. So Rome is, they're ruthless. Uh, their entertainment alone was sadistic chariot races that were gruesome deaths, dude. Uh, the Colosseum and the gladiators we've all heard of, gruesome deaths. Um, and then it says, some sources say up to 40% of the population were slaves. They used slaves. So Rome was, this was different. They were violent. They were just different from the rest of the beasts. 
In verse 7 continues, it says this, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So now we jump to the future. Ten horns we have not seen yet. So we're finished with the 90%, now we're at the 10%. So these ten horns we're going to find out through interpretation through the scriptures, through later in the chapter, it says, correspond to the ten toes of the statue. So the statue had ten toes of partly iron, partly clay, partly strong, partly brittle. These are the ten kingdoms that will arise. These are the ten horns. And verse 8 says this, I considered the horns. So Daniel says there's something different with these horns, something crazy. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. So this one's different. Before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. This thing is different. But notice that all these ten horns, what do they come up from? Do they come up another empire? Is this a new empire? Is this a new beast? No, this is the fourth beast. This is Rome that it comes through. But we've not seen this yet. So we're looking at here the ten kings and then this one horn that comes up is almost a future revived Rome that we're going to see at the end times. The Antichrist will come forth from Rome. And this beast is not just Rome as we knew it from Jesus' time on to the 1800s. This is the Rome that will come back again, somehow revived. These ten horns, they represent ten kings. And now this one horn, this little horn, uproots, uh, he uproots three, he rules with the seven, and he probably leads the seven. But he's different from the rest. It says he has eyes of a man, so this is some kind of man that comes up, this antichrist. As Second Thessalonians says, this man of lawlessness is what he calls it. This mouth speaking great things, will, uh, and we'll expound on this as, uh, in the interpretation here shortly. So we see ten kings come up, three go down with this one coming up and, and blaspheming and speaking great things against the Most High. And then all of a sudden, just when things are getting crazy, just when things are getting chaotic, just when it seems like, dude, there's no hope whatsoever. I'm, I'm thinking Daniel's now at the point where he says, give me some hope. I need some hope. The scene shifts to heaven in the throne room of God. God says, whoa, stop, come up here. This section is going to be for our comfort. It's actually meant to bring us peace. And I would imagine that Daniel is seeing this, this stirring of the winds, these four nasty beasts that come out, the fourth one being dreadfully terrifying. And then all of a sudden he's in the throne room of God. And although that would be scary, but in Daniel's perspective, that probably was the first time he felt the peace, the throne room of the ancient of days. So everything we have just seen in these beasts, these empires will be judged and given over to the rightful king and his followers. This is Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. In verse 9 of Daniel 7, it says this, And as I looked, all of a sudden it shifts. Thrones were placed, so we're, we're, we're skipped to the future here, we go to the future. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Ancient of Days, one of my favorite names for God. Meaning this, this God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. No beginning, no end. The ancient of days, he takes his seat. His clothing was white as snow. He is radiant. He is pure. He is perfect. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. Notice he says like pure wool. I doubt God has wool for hair. But again, he's trying to describe this heavenly, majestic picture in human terms. He can't do it. But he says his hair was like pure wool, meaning his wisdom. And cool, a really awesome little thing is the description of Jesus in Revelation 1.14 is the exact same picture we get. Revelation 1.14, it says this. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. The hairs of Jesus' head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And you know the first three chapters of Revelation deal with the church. They deal with the things that are. Chapters four and on deal with the things that will take place. Uh, the future. But it says eyes like flames of fire. Verse nine continues. It says his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Ezekiel one. Y'all ever read it? the book of Ezekiel? This kind of is a depiction of Ezekiel's vision of the throne of God with fire, this all-consuming fire with wheels that were going to and fro. And I think this, man, at best, at best, man's throne is gold, right? Man's throne is gold. That's the best we can get. See the, the throne of Solomon, majestic, glorious, right? I just went on a mission trip to Nepal, Kathmandu, Nepal. We, uh, 
about 10, 11 of us went over there. We went to serve in an orphanage. It was an incredible trip. I could say so much about it. But one of the days we got to go with the kids to this king's palace that's no longer in use. He was assassinated in 2002, and it was shortly thereafter um, kind of discontinued as a place, and now they just do tours through it. And one of the places we got to was this throne room that was huge. It's majestic. And you see this throne. It's made of gold, these diamonds and all this stuff that are on this throne that you're just like, man, this is glorious. It's unbelievable. It's breathtaking. But then I think, man, this pales in comparison to God's throne. It says, God's throne burns with fire and with streams of fire coming out of it. Burns with fire. And I just think, if any of us, if any king, if any empire, if any people tried to sit on God's throne, they would be disintegrated in a second. That's how holy and set apart God is, is just by the throne that he sits on. And I think about my throne that I sit on every day at my office made of plastic and mesh. It was like 125 bucks. And I'm like, you know what the funny thing is? My seat is closer to the, the gold throne that these men have sat on than their throne is, cl- is close to God's fiery throne that is an all-consuming fire. Isn't that funny when you think about it? It pales into comparison to God's throne and where he sits. He's holy, he's set apart. There are none that can be like him. And then verse 10 says this, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, meaning judgment. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge these empires. And it says a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. And Tom, in his sermon Sunday, brought something up that I thought was so good. I'm like, man, that's so true. And especially reading this verse right here, when you have the myriads of angels is what Revelation calls it. And we panic and black out when one angel appears in the Bible. You see man panic and black out and go to his face. He's, as un- he's about unconscious as he gets. One angel does that to him. Think about when uh, Jesus is in the tomb, the Roman soldiers are guarding it. What happens to them? They see one angel and they are unconscious, they black out. They're, they're like dead men. One angel. Here we're seeing myriads, an innumerable amount. You can't even count how many angels are here around the throne room of God. I think this, this, this scene is just majestic. It's above us. It's both scary but both beautiful at the same time. Myriad upon myriad of angels. And it says the court sat in judgment, so they're about to judge the empires, and the books were open. What do y'all think of this book that's open? The deeds of the empires. These are receipts that God's been keeping since the beginning. Does anything go unchecked? Does anything get past God? Nothing. So the books are open. Now, there are two big judgments that take place at the end times. You've got the great white throne judgment that happens right before eternity, the, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. That's not this one. This one is Christ's judgment uh, that sets up his millennial kingdom, okay? And I think it's interesting. He just took eight verses to describe the nations and mankind and the history of man up until the time of the Son of Man coming, okay? Eight verses he describes. That's quick. Happens like that. And as quick as he describes them is as quick as the Ancient of Days takes its place. It seems so long to us, 2,500 years it's now taken place since Daniel's vision. Seems so long to us, right? Seems like an eternity. Sometimes I wonder, God, where are you? How does evil get away with evil? How have you not judged the world yet? You know what Peter says in his epistle? Do not count the the patience of God um, as anything but salvation towards mankind, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But you know what? To To God, it's eight verses. That's as quick as it is. It's a blink of an eye. As James says, it's a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. It's done. So to us, this takes forever. To God, this is no time at all. As Tom says it too, these guys are all now archaeological digs to the Lord. That's how quick their empires. They rise and they fall. Man's dominion is nothing. It's given by God. It's taken away from God and ultimately will be given to the Son of Man as we're about to see. And then verse 11 says this, I looked then because of the sound, the great words that the horn was speaking. So this this antichrist, this beast is blaspheming and speaking all the way up until the end. He won't shut up. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Just like that, God says, all right, it's over. It's done. Be quiet. The beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned into the fire. 
all this noise and it's over in a blink of an eye. Ancient of Days says, it's finished. You are done. Stop speaking. Revelation 19 depicts this, if you want to write that down, where the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. We see Satan bound for 1,000 years. 1,000 years after this, Satan will come back, remember, to, to get all the four corners of the earth together to go against God in Jerusalem against his king. Fire comes down, consumes him. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the beast forever and ever and ever, where he will be tormented day and night. So God has the last say. And verse 12 says this, and as for the rest of the beasts, so Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, a little bit of Rome, uh, their dominion was taken away because it's given to Christ, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So while the beast and his kingdom are destroyed, never to appear again, we see these first three kingdoms will be incorporated into God's kingdom to serve and to worship him. Somehow incorporated into the next season. And we're about to see God's kingdom under the rule of Jesus Christ. Enter now into the text, the stone, according to chapter 2, that was cut without hands. The stone that destroyed the kingdoms before it and grew to fill the whole earth. Uh, where all peoples, nations, and groups will serve and worship him. Finally, Christ is here. Finally, his dominion is here. Verse 13 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Son of man coming on the clouds. Does that remind you guys of anything in the New Testament? So son of man was Jesus' favorite term for himself. Okay, he used it over 80 times. Son of man, son of man. Y'all remember at Jesus' trial, you remember what they asked him? We adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah. Just tell us. You remember Jesus' response? He says, I am and you will see the Son of Man sitting in power at the right hand of the throne of God. Then you remember what he says after that? And he'll, the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds of heaven. It's the exact reference to Daniel, which is deity and divinity. And you remember what the Sanhedrin did right after he claimed to be the Son of Man that's coming on the clouds of heaven. They tore their robes. They said, blasphemy, crucify him, because they knew this man is calling himself God. This is who Jesus is talking about. He says, I am the son of man that came down with the clouds that's about to take the judgment from the Father. He's about to give me everything and he's about to put every, all dominion under me. So it's a direct reference to deity and divinity. Big deal, okay? Verse 14 continues, it says, and to him was given to the son of man, the stone cut without hands was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, does it, does it ever end? Did the other empires end? Does this, does this empire ever end for the Son of Man? Is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See also the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20 that goes on to eternity forever and ever and ever. You know what's interesting? Satan has been after all of this for so long. This is what Satan's been after for so long. Okay, Dominion, glory, and for all the world to come and serve him. Isn't that interesting? That's what Satan would love. That's what he's wanted since the beginning of time. And all of that is given to Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a beautiful picture. What Satan's been after for so long is given to Christ. And then it continues, verse 15 through 18. It says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Why do you all think that these visions, what he just saw... Wouldn't you think that when he sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds, getting the kingdom, wouldn't you say that would bring some comfort, bring us some peace? Why do you think Daniel's so perplexed and all of a sudden now he's like, man, I am dismayed. This is scary. Why do y'all think that? Do y'all think, you remember he's reading the book of Jeremiah? You remember he says 70 years have been decreed for us to be into exile. And I'm imagining Daniel is going to quickly realize we're at the end of the 70 years. We're actually about to get to go back to our land. And I'm imagining that he's thinking, he knows the kingdom of God is coming. He did before this even. And he's thinking, dude, I'm so ready for the Davidic king to take over. I'm so ready for Israel to, have, to be a people again. I'm so ready for the kingdom to come in. The 70 years we're about done with, we're about to get into our, 
get back to our nation and we're about to be a people again and God is going to be served by all nations, peoples, and tongues. And then all of a sudden he's given this vision and it's like, no man, that's going to be a long time. After Babylon comes Persian and the Medes. After the Persian and the Medes comes Greece. After Greece comes Rome. And then Rome has got to die, somehow come back and be a revived Rome. And then the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. The Davidic king that we've been waiting for for so long. So I would have to think that Daniel's getting these visions and thinking, man, it's going to be a long time. A lot longer than I thought. But it says those are the visions in his head alarmed him. It said this, I approached one of those who stood there meaning some kind of angel, and he said, I asked him the truth concerning everything that I just saw. And he said, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Those four great beasts, as we just talked about, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, me and you, they shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever and ever. Do you all have like 27 forevers in your Bible as well? I think they're trying to get the point across that this is for eternity. This is everlasting. This is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Does that bring us some comfort? These empires rise and fall. Christ comes and it is forever. It is for eternity. And how does the Bible end when we look at Revelation 20, 21, and 22? New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and they shall reign forever. Forever. And then verses 19 through 22, Daniel's going to give us a recap of what he saw in the fourth beast. He says, this fourth beast or something different. This was scary. This was exceedingly terrifying. Please tell me more about this fourth beast. He does that verses 19 through 22. Jump to verse 23 then. And this is what he said. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Rome is going to roll over everything, okay? So that's history. That's what we've already seen. That's a part of the 90%. Now he's about to jump to the future, the 10% we have not gotten to, verse 24. It says this, And for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, this fourth beast, this fourth empire, the feet, the toes of iron and the toes of clay, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them, the little horn, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And he shall be different from the former ones. And he shall put down three kings. So he's going to rule with the seven. He's going to rule over the seven. He's going to rule the entire known world, which is something Satan's been trying to do since the beginning. And verse 25 continues. It says, he shall speak words against the most high. So he's going to be blasphemous. He's going to have absolutely no respect for the Lord whatsoever. There's a guy in history that I think is a type of the Antichrist that will give you a picture of the Antichrist. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. He's one of the four that that took over for Alexander the Great. He went into the temple of the Lord. He sacrificed a pig, which was an unclean animal, and he knew that was blasphemous, and he called himself God. Antiochus Epiphanes means God incarnate. And I believe he's a type of the future Antichrist. But it says, he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So this Antichrist will go after the saints, believers, and shall think to change the times of the law. If you can change the times and the law, you have complete dominion. Can you make anybody worship anything you want them to worship, i.e., go see all the empires before? Were any of those empires worshiping the, the Lord until at least he humbled some of them? No, they were pagan kings serving idols and worshiping idols. So will the Antichrist change the times and the laws. He will make everybody worship him. Also see, get the mark of the beast 666 or you cannot buy or sell. That's what he's going to do. So he sets himself up against God. He changes the times of the law. And it says this, continuing in verse 25, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. If you know Revelation, you know that the tribulation period is seven years Half of it is three and a half years. So time means one year. Times means two years. So that's three years. And a half a times means a half a a year. So three and a half years, God is going to give him dominion. uh, The Antichrist. It says, verse 26, but as quick as he came to power, three and a half years, the court shall sit in judgment. The ancient of days shall take his place and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. So short. 
And verse 27 says this, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Do you remember in Revelation, it's one of the early chapters in Daniel's in the throne room of God, and it says the Ancient of Days, God himself, the Father, has the seal, or he's got the scroll with the seals. And there was silence for like 30 minutes. Nobody had a word to say. And, it's, and, and, and he said, who is worthy to open up the judgment on the empires that's about to take place? And it's silent. Nobody comes up. And what's, what's John start doing? He starts weeping. Because he's like, oh my gosh, I want to see the judgment take place and nobody's worthy. And then what happens? One of the, man, uh, the men come up to him and he says, stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. The lamb that was slain is resurrected. He is conquered. He is worthy to take the scroll. And it says, this lamb came up as it appeared slain, but it was alive as ever. And, it, and he came and he took the scroll that was out of the Father's hand, the Ancient of Days' hand, and he was able to do judgment. So, then the kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The lamb is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And then verse 28, Daniel ends it like this. He says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarm me. These were terrifying uh, visions, and, and not the way that he thought history was going to take place. And it says, my color changed. I don't know if it changed uh, to more of a white color, where all the blood rushed you know, to the core of his body, or it changed back to where he said, man, I had complete comfort and peace after I saw this, and after I saw the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. That brought me peace. It says, but I kept the matter in my heart. Why was Daniel given such great peace and confidence? Because God said and told him everything that was going to happen. And so far for us today, we've seen 90% of it take place to the nth degree down to the last detail the way that God said it would happen. We have not seen the last 10%. Can we trust, because he's given us the first 90%, we've seen it come to the T, can we trust that he's going to finish the last 10% the way he said he's going to last? Can we trust that the Son of Man, the stone cut without hands, is going to come down and crush all empires, judge all nations, and we shall reign forevermore with him? Can we trust that? If we can trust the first part, we can trust this. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it real quick. I think gives us a great picture of what we are to do in light of what we know. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, it says this. And, and I mean, really, you can read all scripture and it talks about the kingdom. I mean, this is just peppered with the kingdom of God throughout all 66 books. But Hebrews says this, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Those other kingdoms, they can be shaken. Those other kingdoms, they fell and they will fall. He says, but we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God then acceptable worship. Prophecy, looking at God's word, should cause us to revere and be in awe of our great God. It says, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God, you know what he says, is a consuming fire. He goes back to Mount Sinai when the people said, please Moses, please tell God to stop speaking on the mountain. It's terrifying. Peals and rumbles of thunder, the fire that's blazing on the top of the mountain. They said, stop, just tell him to stop speaking and we'll do what he says. Hebrews says our God is an all-consuming fire. We see this all throughout Revelation. This is the God that we serve, this all-consuming fire that sits on a throne of fire that will judge the ends of the earth. And I ask us this before I kind of conclude. What kingdom are we serving? What kingdom are we serving? You see, Jesus came the first time. Why did he come the first time? Did he come and set up his kingdom? He inaugurated it, maybe. You could say he started it, started some idea of it, maybe the spiritual sense of the kingdom Jesus started. Why did he come the first time? The sacrifice. He came to judge sin. Aren't we glad he came to judge sin the first time and to show us how to walk in faith with him so that in the second time, what did he come for? Judgment. What kingdom are we serving? Have we given our lives to Christ, the stone cut without hands? Have we surrendered to him? Because we know how it's going to end. 90% has been completed, just like he said it would. We can trust this next 10% that he's got everything under control. 
We're like little Daniels. We've seen the visions. We get to read his word. We know what's going to happen. We know the Son of Man is coming on the clouds with glory. It's going to be wonderful. But we're in a day and age, we're in this mystery period, this period of grace that are we calling people to this kingdom? Do we really understand what the kingdom of God? It gives me a whole new picture when I say, man, God, your will be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a whole different picture then. Because the kingdom's coming with judgment, okay? Unbelievable. So, does it do any good to set dates, set times, try to figure out when Jesus is coming back? People have been trying to do it forever. I know even in Paul's time, he told the Thessalonians, man, don't, Christ is not coming back. They thought he already came back. He said he hadn't come back yet. Uh, anybody read the book, 88 Reasons God is Coming Back, or Jesus is Coming Back in 1988? Good. Did anybody read the sequel, 90, uh, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989? Good. Don't read it. Okay. Uh, you ha- there's so many periods to which people said, man, the Antichrist is here, he's coming. It is hard not to imagine the tables being set. Something's happening, things are being stirred up. It's hard to imagine we're not in the end times right now. It's hard to imagine that the Antichrist is not coming together. But when I look at Scripture and you look at history, it's hard not to see this overarching kind of theme that, that happens where you have man and the history of man trying to rule and set itself up over God, trying to rule over God. Um, you remember when Jesus is tempted by Satan? Matthew 4, right after the baptism, right after his baptism, he goes out in the spirit and he's led into the wilderness and, and Satan tempts him. Remember what he tempts him with? Pretty much all this glory, dominion, and power and for everybody to worship and serve him. Satan said, just bow down to worship me and I will give you all these things. Jesus said, not yet. Not yet. This is Jesus' time. But, you see this overarching theme that Satan is kind of this man kind of rising up and trying to take all dominion and power and you see, but you see all throughout all history kind of one man or one power behind it all that I, I believe really is Satan. And I believe Satan has been trying to set up this kingdom through his antichrist for, since the beginning of time. Since we, you remember Babel in Genesis? Nimrod building the, building the Tower of Babel trying to get to attain to God? and God shuts it down. I believe Satan's been trying to do that since the beginning of time. Um, it's, it's much like, though, uh, Jesus talking about the Gospels of John. You remember when G- it says they're trying to capture Jesus, they're trying to kill him, but it says it's not yet his time. It's not yet his time to where he could literally walk through cr- crowds and br- pretty much disappear. That's how sovereign God was. And then at the end he said, okay, it's time, and Jesus went to the cross. I think that's been all of history where God says, not yet, Satan. Not yet, Satan. I'm snuffing it out. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, nope, not yet. Medo-Persia, not yet. Greece, not yet. Rome, not yet. Revive Rome, take your place. Three and a half years, you got three and a half years, I'm going to use evil to judge evil. And he lets him have three and a half years, and then he does away with it. Uh, Peter in his epistles says, uh, you know the Antichrist is coming, and even now the Antichrist, there's been many Antichrists that have come. People that have set themselves up against God. John Calvin said this about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not a person as much as it's an empire. One that sets its face against God and his Messiah. It's something that's been in existence from the beginning and continues to push forward. So we see this idea that's happened since the beginning of time that I believe God is going to then allow the last three and a half years of tribulation. So here the little horn, Satan finally gets his way when God allows it to happen. But even this, uh, Satan is full, uh, and his beast are thrown into the lake of fire. And it's hard, not to, it's hard to put into words and to understand what our finite minds, the sovereignty of God, not allowing this to happen, snuffing it out, and then saying, it's time. You get three and a half years, and then you're done. And Jesus sets up his kingdom. So, I say all this to say, that's, that's Daniel 7. Unbelievable. He's given us everything we need to know. He's, he's led us in on everything that he's up to. He, he tells us, I not only love you guys, I've sent my son to die for you, but I'm telling you everything that's going to take place. And now we're in this mystery period uh, where we get to call people to the same thing, the same kingdom, that the kingdom of Christ is coming. It's not too late. Amen? We serve a God that's not only over nations and empires. He loves us so much. He has us in the palm of his hands, and he has our life in his hands. So comforting to me. So beautiful. Would you pray with me and then we'll get, I think, to worship. True, it's going to sing.
Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you so much for the book of Daniel, specifically that of chapter 7 that we get to read tonight. I am so greatly comforted. I think we all are greatly comforted that you not, only, you not just leave us in the dark. No, you've given us everything that we need to know. You tell us how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, and that you have the final say at the end, and that we are going to get to co-reign with you if we are found in Christ. So we thank you, Lord, so much, not only for Jesus' first coming, that he did away with sin, he judged death, but that he's coming back again to set up his kingdom. And Someday we're going to rule and we're going to reign with him. It's going to be unbelievable, and it's going to be for eternity. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has imagined, the things that you have prepared for us, Lord, in heaven for eternity. Thank you for being sovereign, and not only sovereign, but caring and being intimate with us. We love you so much. We're so thankful for the cross and the second coming of Christ. Until he returns, God, help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we can pray and we do pray. Amen. We all stand.